All right, guys, guys, guys. He's here. Boots Riley, after the music break. Boots is the writer, director, and composer, songwriter behind Sorry to Bother You, which is about a man, Cassius Green, a.k.a. Cash, played by Lakeith Stanfield, living in a bizarro version of Oakland, or just Oakland, and becomes very successful at his telemarketing job by putting on a white voice, voiced by David Cross. It really is one of the year's most brilliant films uh, that talks about the presenting of race, the trials of capitalism, and what it looks like to sell out your morals in a left-field, genre-bending way that not only pushes black filmmaking forward, but filmmaking as a whole. Welcome, Boos Riley. Thank you very much. I, I, I do have to correct that. Please. Uh, I d- was a songwriter, and we, I produced and wrote the soundtrack with, along with my co-producer, Damian Gallegos, but the score was done by Tune Yards. Got and, it. Uh, uh, Meryl Garbus and Nate Brenner. Got it, so got it. I think that's, I never know how it's broken up, so I think they're the composer yeah, or yeah, something yeah. like well, that. Well, you, you know what? It's just like, you know. you're just the shit. Is what I was trying to say, but <laughs> you know you. that sounds weird. Like Boots Riley, the shit behind, <laughs> you know that sounds weird. So we tried to break out the credits. I guess like you know that's a good place to start. Is what got you here, man? You have you have like a whole career and life before this movie. So uh, yeah. talk to us about how you got here. Well, my grandmother ran the Oakland Ensemble Theater in the seventies and eighties. In Oakland, I guess that makes sense. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I did theater in high school, wrote plays, played in them. I also was in like uh, part of the Berkeley repertoire, the Black Repertory Group, which is in Berkeley, but we're in a storefront, forty people, things like that. Yeah. High school, Spike Lee came out. I was like, okay, I guess we can do stuff for more than forty people at a time. Yeah. And uh, I went to film school. San Francisco State. During that whole time, I was also involved in radical organizations and being an organizer. I also threw parties and all that kind of stuff. So I had all these crazy contracts because we throw the parties that we make fun of in the thing, like upscale <laughs> elegance, dress code, all that kind of stuff. Right. So, you know, I had all of these contradictions and I was do- doing music as well. I don't say contradiction in the bad way, but various things going on swirling in my head but at San Francisco State they focused more on documentary and experimental film and it Mm -hmm. wasn't like going to school like for film in New York or LA where you know somebody that made a movie Mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. and that kind (laughs) of the people that I knew that made movies from that way before Netflix and YouTube so you make a documentary Who's going to see it? Somebody ends up with it on a VHS, forcing 10 people to watch it at their house or something like that. Right. Or experimental film, you get it in an exhibit at a museum or something like that. So we also happen to be in Oakland at a time when because um, most corporations, especially entertainment corporations, whether it's music or film, are as a whole stupid, they had to have a group from Oakland mm-hmm, because other people mm-hmm. had had hits from Oakland. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. If somebody has a green jacket on and they had a hit, we better get more people with green <laughs> jackets. Right. So we happen to be in Oakland at the right time in the right place. Somebody offered, you know, me 
being what 20 years old fifty thousand uh-huh. dollars to make music i'm like okay that's what i'm doing yeah and so did that for 20 something years yeah i you know i've been talking about writing a film for years and just like life just never getting around to it. and i sat down in a hotel room one time and and downloaded final draft and then <laughs> started typing and a few lines down, that's the thing. All of a sudden, it looks like a script. A script. You're yeah. like, wow, I'm, I'm writing a script. Yeah. You know, and uh, so. What was the breaking point? What was the break? Because, you know, we all I, I, we all have that experience of, like, there's that thing you know you got to do it. God damn it, I got to get this out. But then, for I mean, there's I feel like there's always a breaking point where it's like, okay, I got to write this today. I got to yeah. start today. What was? Did you have one like that? Or was yeah. it cumulative? I mean that I think that was it like I was actually at the uh what's that hotel across from uh the Chinese theater on on oh Roosevelt, Roosevelt. yeah at the Roosevelt hotel we were doing something for street sweeper social club uh-huh. but I was just there and it was very lonely very you know yeah I don't know I you know not to put it just for me living I live in Oakland still that that thing kind of just felt really fake and right. I was feeling depressed like what am I doing you know is this what where I want to be and so just just feeling like okay I have to do something to take hold of this feeling and yeah. and, and and feel like I'm putting something out there that I want and want to put out and Depression is pretty yeah. good for that, I have to say. Yeah. You know, like as much as, because I have depression and I hate that, but it definitely helped me figure out when my breaking point was. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't, you know, I don't know that I would have gotten there as quickly as I did uh, if it wasn't for like the crippling sense of doom. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that that's also just, um, you know, being in touch with what you want to do versus yeah. what, you are doing. Man, and that's it. That's and, it. Before you were here, I was talking to um, Alana and Cameron. I'm not sure what order these things come out, but we were talking to, I, I was talking, I was asking this question about, uh, that was posed to me about what part of your work is your zone of genius, meaning the thing that like is just, that's you. You're like in the flow, you're in the zone and it gives you energy. And what part of your work is your zone of expertise, meaning you're really good at this thing and you might even like doing it, you might even love doing it, but at the end of the day, it takes away your energy. And it feels like to me, that's what you were kind of deciding between. It's like, I'm good at this thing and it's working for me. Um, Like when I left my job, I was making a lot of money doing a very specific specialized task and so I'm looking around like why why am I complaining so much well because that wasn't my zone of genius that was my zone yeah. of expertise and yeah. it was draining me um it feels like that's what you were talking about did you find that with this movie yeah, I mean sorry to bother you I've I've definitely feel like I've always known what I can do versus what gets me excited yeah and early on you know I got known for my lyrics like oh he's a lyricist and mm-hmm. and after a while there's certain tricks to that yeah you know like yeah. it becomes like about being clever mm-hmm. like oh look i can put this word with that i can put this idea on top of that and there's these puns and there's these similes and all that kind of stuff and it's like all these technical things mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you're doing and i know how to do them like for me like it would be that sort of thing would make it um, hard 
when I wrote my albums because I, I knew what I could do to get a certain group of folks excited. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was but, for them. Yeah. But it wasn't like something that was touching on something about humanity and life that yeah. I wanted to touch on. And this is separate from the fact that I wanted to put things out that had to do with building a movement and, you know, changing the system. But but even within those parameters, there's one route to go with lyrics that is like you hit these lines and it's all this stuff. And fit, but, it, but it makes me feel subtracted from it. Like, hmm. and so, but some of the lyrics that I like are ones that wouldn't necessarily be, that aren't thought of as a lyricist sort of thing, like Leonard Cohen line, like, mm -hmm. uh, like a baby stillborn, like a bull with its horns. Mm. I've torn everyone who's reached out for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. You know, you put that in a thing and it's not, you know, that's not quote unquote raw. Right. <laughs> but I'm saying, you know, yeah. yeah. but <laughs> like there's something that it's touching on that's it's, it's something sparking else. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I sort of like, because, uh, you know, Michael Jackson's my house mother. Mm -hmm. And so in the conversation of Prince versus Michael, I land on Michael, but it's not because of any reason. Like, <laughs> Prince is, is amazing as well. But to me, lyrically, I love, I love, I love Prince's lyrics because they're mysterious, but they're specific enough to where you can kind of figure out what he's talking about. But Michael's yeah. lyrics are like, it, they're just like vocal expressions like it's kind of doesn't even matter what he's saying really yeah. it's just he it's like it's the right vowel there's something else that he's getting at that is not as easily or as definable intellectually yeah like you, you're not going to you know especially with lyrics with hip-hop you'll have these folks going back and forth like let's yes. put this line for line and there's yeah. some sort of like yeah some sort of evidence that 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 you can um this is smarter than that Put up there, yeah, and the, you know, and that's not the part of my body I want to be feeling the music in. But I just want to say I am heavily way over on the Prince side. Oh, I'm not saying I got that. that. I know, you know? that. Okay. Man. I know that. Anyway, let's stop talking about music. I want to talk about film because the thing to me, 2018 was really exciting for film. Oakland in particular really represented with your film and Blind Spotting. For me, those were like it was really exciting that there were two weird movies coming out of Oakland from black filmmakers that pushed the... the that were filming at the exact same time. Is that so? Trying, uh, vying for equipment. <laughs> Crabs in a barrel! <laughs> Why do they have us competing? Uh, but it was like, it was like there's two of these coming out in a year? Like, yeah. it was so exciting to me because this is the kind of movie, I felt like, sorry to bother you, it was the kind of movie that you know, you come across like once in a blue moon. It's like, this is a really original, something just brand fucking new, um, but also being introduced to a space and a culture that, you know, I didn't grow up in Oakland. I have an idea of what Oakland is in my head, but I, I felt Oakland in your movie in a way that I, I don't even know if I can really put it into words. And what struck me as, as, as so great about your film is that not only are you doing a lot of interesting things as a filmmaker, it felt like it came out of a process. Like, and, and I, look, I'm just projecting onto you now, but it felt okay. like it came out of a process that was unique as well. Tell me about like just the making of the thing and like how you make things. Definitely. Even with things that I have created many times before, 
Sometimes I'll purposely mix up the process just so that I come out with something different. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's going to be different anyway. And then sometimes I mix up the process because I always forget how I did it last time until I'm like writing it like, oh, this is what I do. Right. But obviously with this, this is my first film. So what happened was I wrote the screenplay, finished it the beginning of 2012 or something like that, and had no connection to the industry at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Had just the idea of how things got made in that way. And so I put out, I I decided to put out this this album that I had been writing at the same time and making at the same time that was supposed to be the soundtrack. So Mm. we put out an album Mm -hmm. in 2012 called Sorry to Bother You that came came out after I finished the, the screenplay, thinking that that would help get some publicity around it and like maybe attract some people with money. Yeah. Uh, that didn't work. Okay. And so, <laughs> so I had to put it out and tour it to make money. Cause when you're getting paid pennies, you got to go around collecting a lot mm-hmm. of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And so tour for a couple years and I was walking down Valencia in San Francisco and ran into Dave Eggers, mm-hmm. uh, who, runs uh, McSweeney's publishing house. By this time, I was throwing my hands in the air like, okay, I guess I won't be able to get this made, but I'll put it out on the internet. And Just put the screenplay out, you mean? Yeah, just yeah. put the screenplay out. And I had written the screenplay. I had originally written the, uh, the like, even the the scene descriptions mm-hmm. in a way like for it to be funny. For it to be read. Right, right. yeah, 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 like yeah. It, mm-hmm. for it to be its own thing right and so i i ran into dave eggers and i said look i'm gonna put this out on the internet could you give me some notes on Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. so i can tighten it up before i do that then he was like he read it and said wow you need to let me put this out on mcsweeney's uh as its own paperback book in screenplay form but as its own paperback book and then packaged with the quarterly. So it went out to like 10 or 20,000 people in 2014. Wow. You know, I have friends that were filmmakers, but in the Bay Area, people are making music videos and commercials Mm -hmm. as opposed to movies for the most part. And so everybody was like, no, you don't do that. You don't put your screenplay out there, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't know, but whatever I'm doing ain't working. And, you know, this is... And so doing that, and the reaction it was getting got me hyped about, like, actually, maybe I could get this made. So I joined SF Film as a filmmaker in residence. Mm-hmm. And then in 2015, joined the Sundance Writers Lab, got yep. got into the Sundance Writers Lab. During that year, they also put me through the Catalyst Program, which is where you go and pitch your stuff to investors. Um, 2016, the Director's Lab got money together, um, and uh, then we uh, shot in 2017. Wow. So it's been, you know, I I started in, yeah. The directors directors and the writer's lab, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and and Sundance, you know, really picking it out and putting it through that Catalyst program because, you know, we had um, gotten in touch already with uh, Significant, which is Nina Yang Bon Jovi and, and Forrest Whitaker's company, and... Uh, significant put up the lion's share of the money, but we met through the Catalyst program. We met Macro, mm-hmm. uh, who mm-hmm. put up a significant amount, and then uh, also uh, 
uh, Center Reach, who we met through yeah. through, the, through the Catalyst program, that and great. and then the dude Gus Deardoff that put forth the you know that was like, hey, I can give you eighty thousand dollars right now. Cool. I was like, cool. Wow. Can I put it in this pocket right here? Wow. And uh, we, wow. you know, that was getting the development going. Wow. Especially for us filmmakers like us, black filmmakers that have things to say that maybe are a little bit different than what people are used to hearing. Um, yeah, you got to always have one foot outside. And had I not gotten into the writer's uh, lab in Sundance, it, besides, maybe it would have got made, but maybe it would have been. So what I learned from there were, were, were things that, that I got from writers that I'm, the kind of writers that I might not have gotten in contact with otherwise. Mm-hmm. Writers that... Um, had been through the Hollywood thing, the whole industry, but also who had a large irreverence to it as well. Yeah, right? yeah. The screenplay was very controversial mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. Sundance itself. I won't say I don't know very, but people just there were there was a a camp of people that loved it and a camp of people that were like, ah, oh, this is pretty damn crazy. Okay, and. Uh, <laughs> and and these were masters of their craft, okay. right? I was always hyped for anybody to read the screenplay because it was like they were watching my movie, you yeah, know, whatever. Yeah. But to have them all uh, read it, but then also to have them disagree about it mm-hmm. was one very important thing to me. Okay. Because, you know, a lot of times you'll go to people and they've got the answer, Yeah. right? Yeah. And they're like... This is how it's done. This is what's more professional. And that is less professional. Uh-huh. And what you're doing is going towards more professional. And what, you know, and so yeah. you end up where everything gets smoothed out in the same way. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And this was this let me know when I'm see, sitting there seeing them debate with each other about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that is the, the dude. That is the revelation <laughs> For me, that like everyone I know that's like trying to break in, I'm like, here's the thing. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And once you realize that, it gives you, it's maybe a little terrifying, but it gives you permission to do it your way. Yeah. Is, that, is that how you took it? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, look, we're all trying to figure this out. What I knew is the best thing I could do is be in touch with it on a visceral level. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and, and also be honest with myself about, you know, what worked what doesn't work and you know and i think some of the same things that weren't working um were the things that i had learned earlier from music but hadn't put it which was that trying to just be so clever that it's not in touch with what's Mm -hmm. real you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like mm because you know we had long monologues from everybody every character in there that made me look really good as mm-hmm. a writer. like mm-hmm. i knew a lot mm-hmm. of words mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and uh you know but being able to be honest with yourself and 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 take in notes but also just know that there's 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 a wild card in yeah there. boots how do we create a world because I feel like I didn't grow up in this time period, so I can read about it nostalgically, but I feel like in the mid-70s, adults would go to movies to be surprised and to be like, what the fuck was that? And to talk about it. That's like That was a fun thing to do. Yeah. Now it's like if you got to have your brain on in a movie, people will just dismiss it. That's a thing, too. And I... And I 
I, I love the fact that I could walk into your movie and be challenged by it and entertained. I mean, that to me is is my is the quintessential movie going experience. I love that in a movie. I hate when I go into a movie, my brain didn't fire yeah. off once. Yeah, you, how do I we mean, get people more used to it? Obviously, making you I making movies making, better successful. Making more one, uh, and it's 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 a language, right? It's it's like people understanding that that they might be able to to be taken by surprise. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but then it's weird because then that new thing becomes the rule that yeah. everybody yeah. does. And, and I think, you know, I don't want to make 20 sorry to bother you. Yeah. Where like, oh, okay, here comes this part. You yeah, know, yeah, that yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. thing. Here's the right? part where they turn into horses. Okay. Yeah, okay. But we're not putting that on here just in case people hadn't seen it. So oh, hopefully. First of all, <laughs> I guarantee that 90% of the people listening to this podcast right. have seen your movie. <laughs> right. And if you haven't, this would be a great time. We're going to take a break. <laughs> uh, please let the, the soft sounds of someone from KCRW uh, lull you into buying something. We'll be right back. All right. On the newest episode of Nocturne, KCRW's podcast about the night. Can you hear that? Can you hear the hum? I woke her up and I said to the wife, can you hear this noise? And she was like, what noise? And she couldn't hear it. It's like a truck engine idling. And when you open the door to see that truck, it's not there. All over the world, people are kept awake by a low-frequency sound with no explanation. That's on the latest Nocturne, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm back with Boots Riley. We were talking about Sorry to Bother You. So before we went to break, we were talking about audiences' appetite for yeah. being challenged by a film. Yeah, I think, I think that's the thing. That's As an artist, I mean, I don't think you, you want it to be where people are just like, okay, cool. I, mm-hmm. You know, like, um, I mean, you want them to be open to it. But when I see somebody tweet like, oh, I saw Sorry to Bother You and I'm disturbed, I don't take that as bad. That's great. You know what I'm saying? That's good news. Like, like, (laughs) If you walk out of that movie feeling um, verified or feeling like, I feel great about reality. Uh, Something didn't happen. Yeah, well, well, I want, you know, I I have a, I'm hoping that it's an optimistic thing. However, it doesn't mean that it's just pleasant. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, it's just like, I'm not just here to give you a massage, right? <laughs> you know? Like I'm It's a you deep know. tissue. Yeah, I would yeah, say. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it yeah, hurts yeah. a little bit. Yeah. What is what is the I mean, sorry to bother you also was a huge financial success. Like what what do you how do you interpret that? Um because yeah. for me that made me really excited because it made me feel like, okay, wow, um audiences are ready to to do this like yeah. every year maybe. Yeah, I, I think I think it's uh I think that it's something that will still it's still gaining ground. Yeah, in a sense. So, you know, like people are seeing it every day on, you know, VOD and all that kind of stuff. So I think right now it's still reaching people that never Beyond even that. heard about it. Um, it does excite me. It also means a lot of people with funding to do the things that I want to do want to work with me. So that's kind of just how I I look at it for myself. But I also think. It is inspired. You know, look, I go and speak at schools. A lot of young filmmakers are coming up to me like saying, I didn't know we could Mm, do this. That's it. That's what is so powerful about your movie is that they're little Boots Rileys. (laughs) 
<laughs> sitting around that are going to encounter this thing at some point in their life and go, oh, we can do this? Because yeah. you kind of did all the things <laughs> in that <laughs> film. You were like, I mean, you you went for it and there was like no apologies. Um, tell me this. What is the, is there a note that you are so glad you didn't take? <laughs> oh, yeah, there's some notes that, I mean, I don't even, I wasn't even considering taking, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. like, um, but just something you know, that's like, you know, in retrospect is definitely crazy. I mean, there's so many of them. I got to figure out which one is <laughs> the funniest. But, you know, like I had somebody tell me like just that, you know, really it's just boil it down to just it's Detroit and Cassius and there's a union struggle. Mm. That's what it really is about. So and just take they, the and we also need to meet. That, that we need to see Detroit and Cassius meet at the telemarketing uh-huh, place. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, and like just all the those, I mean, that was like the most like blatant, like let's make it this other thing. Just but gut the, it of its DNA, basically. Yeah. There's a thing in indie filmmaking, like indie filmmaking likes to look at itself as being very cutting edge. But because of the economic restraints, there's a certain way of cutting down yeah. to do that to where everything gets cut down to where it's two people talking on a couch or mm-hmm, something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And so I have all of these little things that people are like, why is that in there? Mm-hmm. That's not, quote unquote, serving the narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. But for me, it's telling me something more about these folks and their world and, you know, and, and things that that in ways that don't necessarily go linear in the story, mm-hmm. but they make you feel that world. What's an example of that from, from uh, sorry to bother. I mean, I feel I mean, like there's, there's I mean, few. this is a little one. There's like the bottle that opens that, that, that Danny Glover is drinking something from. Uh-huh. And I, that for me, that, that went along with the theme of there, there are so many things that are behind the things that we, and just to, it just real. describe that scene, just for the okay. kids at home who so haven't Danny, seen it. I mean, 5%. this is just a little thing, like, but to me, it's an important detail. It's like Danny Glover is uh, plays Langston, who has been the person that uh, somehow knew about this white voice and mm-hmm. this magical white voice, uh, and and taught Cassius how to do it. And they're at a bar, and before him and Cassius start talking again, he orders a drink. And the bartender goes to pick up a bottle of whiskey and he says, nah, uh uh-uh, not that one. I want the good stuff. And then the bartender goes towards an identical bottle of whiskey that has basically like a secret door on the front of it Yeah, that opens up and then there's a tiny bottle of whiskey (laughs) in there with lights on it and everything. Yeah. And uh and you know, so those are the details that when you're like we you know, we are shooting 61 locations uh-huh. in 28 are days. Are you sure you want the bottle inside <laughs> yeah. the other bottle shot? <laughs> yeah. Like the you know, things like that, those sorts of details. People trying to come at it from a practical perspective, mm-hmm. but it's just the first cut. Yeah. Ha- instead of like looking for other creative ways to cut things. Right, right. And, and, and so one way I was able to cut things is that I live in Oakland, I grew up in Oakland, and I've had all these lives in Oakland, 
so I know everybody. Yeah. And so we could get locations for free. You know, other production value that's added, like where normally if you want your scene to look a certain way, it's you, it's hard to do that with extras because once you talk to them as a director and give them their own thing or then they're not an extra anymore. Right. Yes. Yeah. So just for but the if, for the for the kids who don't know, yeah, you're as a director, you're technically not supposed to talk to them and give yeah, them unless direction. they're friends and well, well, you don't have to give them direction, but if they're friends and family, yeah, there you you can you talk, can do that. You yeah. can talk to them. Yeah. And so and that's know. a money thing, just for people who who you know, if you, if you, director starts to work with an extra. It technically puts them in a different money category, mm-hmm. and you got to pay them more. It's a whole and different so thing. and you can't so meaning you. So you have movies that I, I love, you know, like Milos Foreman, Fireman's Ball, Loves of a Blonde, and uh, uh, what's his name? Deer Hunter dude did also, uh, the uh, Michael Cimino that also did uh, uh, Heaven's Gate. Mm-hmm. You have these crowd scenes that add so much that, that, that the ways people are moving and walking really, sub, you know, make, make a... It's like it puts you in the world. Yeah, makes you feel like that thing is bigger. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, we did, like, duplicate a lot of people and were able to make them look different. But still, those people were down to come back over right. and over right. again. Yes. And, um, and, you know, so we were able to make it feel like a world. And those things might seem like it doesn't matter that much, but it does. It matters it so ma- much. You know, yeah. But my first feature, Dear White People, there is any scene where you see Tessa in the film school classroom. That classroom looks full to the brim. <laughs> when I say everybody in that classroom is in those frames, <laughs> like there's like a forehead, you know, yeah, yeah, really yeah. close to the lens, like blocking off half of the classroom and there's someone right behind her head and there's maybe like a neck behind that. Yeah. That's all we had. Yeah. If you wind out any further, that classroom would be completely empty. Yeah. But you gotta, those are the kind of corners. I, I hear what you're saying because what you're telling me is that you want to protect, you want to protect the details that matter. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like that is what filmmaking is in a lot of ways. It's like there's there's a billion choices you can make every day. Maybe not a billion, but there's hundreds of thousands of choices that you can make in a film. And well, and choosing which things that you value. Another and which thing that, you that don't. was always on the chopping block that I had to that was the uh, the phone call crashing scenes. Oh, oh, really? You know, yeah, wow. it was always on the chopping block, like up until we did it. Oh, wow. You know. <laughs> Those are like, I mean, that's like the trailer moments. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. But it was also because the things I was proposing um, were things that the ways that we did it practically Mm -hmm. were ways that hadn't normally been done. Yeah, sure. And so me saying, here's how we do it. Because, you know, like I'm looking up how people do things practically. That was like... People are like, oh, I don't, I don't think this is this is something that's that's going to take us a whole day to just do. Sure, that. yeah. And I was yeah. like, no. What we do, we strap the back of a chair to Lakeith's back. Yep. He squats. That's one shot. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. the the desk almost going. And they were like, no, no, it's going to blah blah blah. That's not going to work. But then once I got my uh, production designer on board, and he was. Jason Kisvarde was a, who's an amazing production designer, but like then that's somebody who could lie and say they'd done it before. Sure, yeah, That's I mean that's so common. First of all, I want to know who your heroes are. Kubrick, who's like 
I mean, that's like at the top of the pantheon mm-hmm. for me. But his the th- the anecdote that people often said about him is like every movie comes complete with a million stories where someone told him, you can't do that. That's insane. Yeah. And then he just did it. Yeah. And it wasn't insane. And in fact, it's one of the things you remember the most about some of his films. Who else is in that category for you? Like the people who like kind of inspire you? Um, there's Emir Costa Rica, mm-hmm. Black Cat, White Cat, Underground, Time of Gypsies all the chaos that's going on in there. And those films are, are racist, you know, some of them. Mm. And, uh, but they're, 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 uh, great things to look at and learn from. And, um, let's see who else, uh, Sergei Parajanov, mm-hmm. the things wow. he does with wides, yeah. like color of pomegranates. Uh, like I said, Michael Chimeno, uh, uh Milos Foreman, uh, Paul Schrader, Mishima. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we have a scene in there uh, that's basically just directly stolen from Mishima. Okay. <laughs> when the uh, when uh, quoted, it's a uh, visual quote. Yeah, let's call whatever. It that. <laughs> um, it's a uh, you know when when uh, there's a scene in Mishima in the section called uh, Temple of the Golden Pavilion where the main character of that section just gets enraptured with the golden pavilion and mm. the, the camera zooms towards him. We do a zoom dolly sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Zolly, as some yeah. might call it. And it's when Cassius is mm-hmm. being enthralled with the, the elevator. Um, Coen Brothers. Yeah. Everything is played straight, but it's going to be hilarious because life is hilarious. Yeah. Right. Darkly, darkly comedic. Um, there are people who inspire me, but I stay away from them because they inspire me so sure. much that then I could, you know, slip down there. Like there are people that love Prince, but when they go too far over, you like, I'd rather just listen to Prince. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So, yeah so, absolutely. So, you know, like so Spike Lee, like I said, inspired me to go to film school, but. That's not the aesthetic that I'm going for. Um, And uh, let's see, obviously, Charlie Kaufman, Michelle Gondry, Spike Jones, um, um, Charles Burnett, uh, not so much Killer of Sheep, but uh, To Sleep With Anger. Sleep With Anger. Um, Wow. That's a good, that's a good list, man. I think that's what, I think that's what's so exciting about you is you, you sort of like, it's a lot of connections that I think, honestly, as a black filmmaker, kind of makes sense to be. But I think to the world at large, it's like, I don't know. that the, I never saw that those things could go together yeah. before with black people in them also. And these, you know, your visual language and the stuff that you do with sound in the movie, too. Well, for me, like, knowing that, like, that same thing of, like, you could love Prince, but you could go over the line. Yeah. I'm making sure that. I'm in touch with all of the things that I like and not editing them out because they don't fit a certain genre. But so I know that from music, like to like reach other places. So I also tried to do what I thought was like literary references. Yeah. So definitely this film is very much informed by Invisible Man, not Mm. just like Mm -hmm. the general idea of the protagonist, but the details, Invisible Man, uh, Toni Morrison, many different Toni Morrison's bo- books, but like uh, Song of Solomon specifically, mm-hmm, I think, mm-hmm. is in my head. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, what they do with detail. So I wanted to have something that was messy, like funk and mm-hmm. like 
Jacob Lawrence painting, you know, like, yeah. w- which is collage and stuff like that. And a lot of times, um, especially like in in black film, when we get some money or some budget or whatever, like, oh, we got the Sony Red or whatever. I don't even know if it's Sony, whatever. We got the <laughs> uh, Sony Red is a record label, but the, the, we got the Red camera, right, you know, right, right, and yeah. um, like this whole extra clean yeah. like this is that's even a word yeah. clean oh, like yeah. like that that that's complimentary because it's not poor mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and even george clinton talks about it at the beginning of mommy what's a funkadelic like there was this thing that was coming out of these bars we used to see down south and we tried to run away from it we moved to detroit and slicked our hair yeah. back and then we realized it was calling to us and i wanted to make something that connected to that that had this messiness to yeah. it. But to me, I wouldn't describe Toni Morrison as clean or Ralph Ellison. Or, like there's all of this stuff jumbled in there, but there's something shining through, something yeah. in the front of it that yeah. is shining through. And if you look close, you get this sort of messiness. It's, you know, um, all of those things. Well, I so, think it's, yeah. again, I think it's exciting. I mean, it feels like, you know, me and Lena used to call it like, you know, essence cover black. It's like, you know, so many of us are sort of, we all want to be on the on the cover of essence black. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like all the edges are smoothed and like all of the jagged parts of our experience yeah. are sort of like neatly uh, ordered. And um, that's like, not, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's something that's, that's like a Cadillac. I can appreciate that. Absolutely. But then, you know, but then there's also like lots of African art that is like adorned with all of these things and the colors don't go like mm-hmm. you could wear a whole bunch of colors and you know you'll hear people being like oh what you doing wearing that orange yeah. with that green you know yep and, yeah <laughs> but it's beautiful when you are doing it how know? do you how do you withstand that pressure that's something i'm still learning it's like you know when you get it you get what you're trying to do but whatever the people in the room are, are asking you to smooth the edges how do you hold how do you hold your line when do you know how do you boots know when to listen and when to and when to defend i mean it's something that over 20 something years of doing music that i've i've had to figure out like what is the and i'm not saying i'm always successful at it at, at, at figuring out what the right thing is to do but sometimes what people are saying you know, it's like that that note within the note yes. thing, like where they may be saying one thing in a certain way, and they're using the examples they have around them to say it. But maybe what they're just saying is they don't connect to it, right? Right. Right. And it might not be because of the smoothing. Yeah. And so for me, then I'm like, well, how about if I turn this up? You know, like yeah. somebody yeah, yeah. might come and say, "Look, you need the drums louder on this mm-hmm. song." Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? They're already like it's crazy, <laughs> but what they really mean is I need to turn the guitar down. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my I I want to connect with people. Yeah. I also though I want them to feel something mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. You know I want them to engage with it in a way that makes them feel. You know I don't want them. To, you know even with music like this is that beat number 23 that everybody's using this year yep and yep, yep. You, you know you're you're putting your thing over it so i can accept it i can do the exact dance that i always do yeah. to that now but but there's something to that you you, you know i i want to get in there in that conversation yeah but i also don't want to just be one of the 
50 songs that use that beat number 23 that then you forget next week. It's like right. you, you want to be, you know, it's like you throw in speed bumps just to make sure you're still listening. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't just cruise along a Boots Riley Street. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a, there's a, like the bottle within the bottle is a speed bump. It's like, oh, yeah. oh. I feel like it turned, it, 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 it just sort of reminds you to be awake and to interact with the movie. That's what I appreciated mm-hmm. so much about your film is that like it, it demanded that I pay attention to it and it demanded that I scrutinize it. And, have a an active not a passive an active experience with the film and a lot of films don't do that and i find it so boring <laughs> i find it well, so boring it's i mean i wasn't trying to get a job yeah, yeah. you know like yeah yeah so. <laughs> that's really profound because the subtext of a lot of movies is like i just want to work again yeah Damn, that is not a lie, Boots Riley. <laughs> I never known you to be a liar, but wow, that's good. So I want to make this this film, and that's what I'm making. And the next film, I'm gonna want to make that film. Or yeah. Whatever. And well, so, what are you what are you doing now? I mean, I hate I hate this question, but I have to ask it because everybody listening wants to know. Like, what are you working on now? I'm creating a TV show. Yes. Uh, for. Michael Ellenberg's new studio, Media Res. Uh, Michael Ellenberg is one of the people that brought Game of Thrones to HBO. So I'm writing the pilot and going to direct that. And then I'm put together a writer's room, which I have no idea how to do. I don't know nothing, <laughs> anything about TV, actually. And, Nobody does. And, and then, uh, then I'm, doing, I'm writing and directing... Uh, episode of Guillermo del Toro's horror anthology oh, for Netflix called Ten amazing. After Midnight. That's and it's, amazing. Uh, it's actually adapting a short story that he picked out. And then I have uh, two films that I am writing. I have to write more than one thing at a time because yeah. if I, when I get to a bump, if I just like stop writing to, you know, then then I have to restart again. And that's harder than just like moving Switching to something a lane. else. Yeah, you know? I get so that. yeah, I have two two film. You know, and that's the good thing about having a film that made money is that there's people that are like, "How do we do this with you?" Yeah, and also I'm starting this late. I'm 47, and I have a lot of stuff to get done. And I also have like dozens of ideas from all these years yeah. that think like nine of them are really, really good. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting those prepared. Yeah. Well, I'm ready for it, man. <laughs> I'm so ready for it. Um, anything that's like pissing you off right now about the movie industry that you want to get off your chest? I always invite my guests to 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 rant if they would like to towards mm. the end of our episodes. This is Don't At Me. As we enter the holiday movie season. <laughs> Yeah. And you look at your choices. Are you excited I mean, about it? Uh, of the choices of films? Yeah. In the multiplexes these days. I mean, I said something recently about uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, like, how are you going to have a Freddie Mercury movie with no sex in it? Or, yeah, no and, gay sex, and, for sure. Yeah. And, like, who decided that his time of having balls to the wall fun was terrible? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he even in it says don't make me the cautionary tale right. at the very exact time while he's the cautionary tale. I bet you he had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but anyway, so that's my my whole thing with that. I didn't want to know about who wrote 
this song at that time and right. who who wrote the guitar solo. So I could see something happening right there. But I could see that because that movie is like the mo- that movie is like almost all gloss. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's all the like comfortable things about a movie, uh, a mm-hmm. biopic especially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I think. Um, you know, I enjoyed the movie. But I think I think Rami Malek did an oh my God. amazing I job. Mean, that's why you go see that movie is to yeah. see him perform. And also, like the Live Aid scene, I thought was amazing. It was exhilarating. But yeah, I wanted to see the stuff that was off screen. Like I wanted to see, I wanted to see what happened where they would look at each other across a bar. Like I wanted yeah. to see, like how did uh, how do we go from looking at each other across the bar to just like full blown AIDS? Like yeah. how do we like <laughs> st- something happened in between? Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Things. You know what I mean? And, I mean, uh, and that's just even just talking about life. Like, fuck it, everybody dies. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like it's yeah. uh, they have plenty of biopics where somebody dies at the end from cancer, mm-hmm. and they're not like mm-hmm. every time they pick up a cigarette. Of course, yeah, we zoom you know? into the yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. like they're not doing that. Also, you know? he he did not get just for the right. He did not get diagnosed with HIV until three years after the events of the film. But that's another story. <laughs> that's my don't at me rant. That's yeah. some bullshit. Yeah. Um. <laughs> sorry. What were you gonna say? Um. Yeah. I just want to say a warning. There will be a whole bunch of anti sorry to bother you movies, and I'm not talking about stro- story structure or anything. I'm talking about like anti movement movies mm. coming out. Some of them may already be out that will be being sold to us. Mm-hmm. And that happens in every like generation of movie going that I could see. Like in the 60s, you had all this stuff going on. It took, because things were slow, it took like 10 years later than they had like the, the stereotypical black radical mm. who were just like black mis- exploitation. Yeah, who, yeah. Well, not even oh. in black exploitation, in other movies like, okay. where oh, you know, like where they have these representations of movements. I, I think it'll be more slick this time. Um, but writers don't do it even if they're asking you to do it. Yeah. Just, just nod your head and write something else. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, right. you know, if you're just, if you're doing it to try to get that payment. But look at, you know, what you're doing. You can make a great movie and one that actually represents your experiences in life, your experiences in the world and and putting what really goes on in there like a lot of rebellion is edited out so even if your characters aren't that person throw throw some real stuff that happens in the world yeah. in there because so many times we have stuff in there that's just a trope that we see in other movies that really doesn't happen like i have never been to a noontime cafe date Mm, okay right all right it's in every movie every time so, you know what i'm saying like yeah. it, because it's in other movies right because sure. that's how really films work which is why i want to be in it is that in doing it is like we don't remember what our real life is sometimes versus right. what we experienced in a movie yes and what, you know? what we expect in a movie too you know yeah. yeah and so i'm just witnessing there's so many movies that come because Somebody who didn't want to do it themselves had the idea, mm-hmm. told it to a producer who also didn't want to do it. They hire mm-hmm. a director who has no, uh, or they hire a writer who doesn't have passion for it, but they get to get a check. Yep. Then they hire a director who also doesn't have passion for it, and everybody's expecting someone else to like to it. To care. Every, you know, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't know about you, but I can definitely feel that when I'm in a movie theater. Like, yeah. nobody cared about this. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe the marketing team cared about baby. it the most. But the, yeah, you know? it's nobody's baby. Dude, this was amazing. 
Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to sit down and really meet you. Yeah. So gives us an excuse. I think maybe if people walked around with microphones and (laughs) then they get in deeper conversations. Yeah, man. Come on, KCRW. Just give out (laughs) microphones to random black people so we can connect. Um, Thank you so much, man. I'm going to read these credits in front of you. I hope you don't mind. Uh, But I would like to thank Boots Riley for sitting down with me today. I would like to thank our producers, Gina Delvac and Kara Hart, our production engineer, Stephen Colon. Chuck Prevateri. Special thanks to Vishnu Vallabhanani, head of programming Quinn O'Toole. Chris Bowers created our theme song. This is Don't At Me with Justin Simeon. If you like the show, subscribe at Apple Podcasts. You know the deal. We'll be back next week with another episode of Don't At Me from the one and only KCRW. Thank you, man. Really appreciate you. Thank you, man. That was great. Uh. That was great.